This is The Political Scene, a weekly conversation with New Yorker writers and editors about politics. It's Friday, November 30th. I'm David Rode, the executive editor for news at newyorker.com, filling in for Dorothy Wickenden. Over the past two weeks, thousands of migrants from Central America have arrived in the Mexican border city of Tijuana, hoping to be granted asylum in the United States. On Monday, at a campaign rally in Biloxi, Mississippi, President Trump scorned the arriving migrants as criminals. Republicans are committed to halting this incursion and defending the sovereign borders of the United States. We are sending a simple message to the lawless caravans and to the illegal trespassers marching toward our border. It's very simple. Turn back now, go back home. We will not let you in. We are not going to let you in. Turn back now. Trump said that letting in Latin American migrants would overwhelm America's communities, bankrupt its treasury, and destroy its healthcare system. He accused Democrats of inviting caravans of illegal aliens into the United States. They want to turn America into one giant sanctuary city for violent criminals and MS-13 and other gang killers. No thank you. No thank you. Last month, Jonathan Blitzer traveled to southern Mexico to report on the migrant caravans when they first crossed into the country. Today, he's in Tijuana, Mexico, covering the arrival of the caravan on the U.S.-Mexico border. John, welcome. Thanks, David. You're down in Tijuana now, and what are the conditions like there? I'm curious what, you know, the caravan members are actually telling you about their experience now that they've actually made it to the U.S. border. I think members of the caravan arrived in Tijuana thinking that this was the sort of final destination, their their staging ground before they were able to make this last push into the U.S. So people arrived here with a real sense of expectation, and those expectations were dashed almost immediately upon their arrival. Um, Tijuana is a city that is already racked by crisis because the U.S., has been systematically denying entry to asylum seekers heading north. I mean, the migrant shelters are, are, are filled. Um, migrants themselves have taken to renting rooms. They've spent weeks and in some cases months here waiting for the opportunity to present their claims at the U.S. border. And into this mix comes uh, the caravan. About 6,000 people who have obviously spent the last month moving slowly and ploddingly through Mexico. Um, they have been stationed at a refugee center within view of the U.S. border. The conditions in this refugee camp are absolutely squalid. People have begun, those who can, have begun to wear face masks as they walk into this camp because there are concerns about the spread of illness. Uh, there is a, a wretched odor, the result of human waste, heaps of trash piling up. Um, people are sleeping, women and children, um, cheek to jowl on the ground. Um, and there is really a sense of desperation, uncertainty, confusion about what's next. A, a lot of the caravan members are, are, are actually quite literally trapped. Many of them can't go back. Many of them were actually fleeing life-threatening situations in their home country, most of them from, from Honduras. And yet, moving forward, there's really no way for them to get north immediately. And so they are in this absolutely agonizing limbo. Are the migrants able to go to the U.S. border and actually apply for asylum? Like what is actually happening um, when they reach the border? So a few things have happened. One of the 
weirder and more idiosyncratic fact of seeking asylum here in Tijuana, San Diego, is that the U.S. government has basically begun to meter or limit the number of asylum seekers who are allowed to make their claims at the border every day. Uh, and so for those who want to cross through an official checkpoint and, and, and seek asylum that way, the way to do it is to basically go to a little plaza just south of the border and give their name and a simple identity document to another group of asylum seekers, volunteers, who keep a notebook, a ledger. And in that ledger, there are about 5,000 names, handwritten in blue ink on lined paper, um, that effectively constitutes uh, a sort of official and unofficial waiting list. The Mexican immigration authorities are between a rock and a hard place. They're trying to tend to the migrant community here, filling the shelters and spaces in Tijuana, and yet they're at the mercy of the US who is, you know, which is limiting the number of people are, who are allowed in. And so what they've done is they've outsourced this waiting list to asylum seekers themselves. And, and these people wait for their number to be called. Uh, and it takes, in many instances, several weeks, at least more than a month. And when their name gets called, they then get to do what they should have been able to do quite straightforwardly in the first place, go to the port of entry and actually make their asylum claim. And Trump and the White House and the Department of Homeland Security like to suggest that there is this sort of state of total chaos uh, at the border, that when someone, that anyone can kind of enter at will. No, there is a very elaborate uh, and careful protocol in place. And I'm just curious, how many names are on this ledger? There are about 1,600 numbers listed on the ledger, and under each number are 10 names. Uh, and the idea is that every day when the U.S. government says, OK, we're going to allow 80 people to come to the border and present their asylum claims, that number gets relayed through Mexican immigration agents to the immigrant volunteers in this plaza. And then they start to read out the names under each of these numbers. So at this point, when I was there the other day, the number they were starting from was 1,140. And so between where they started that day, calling out the names and where the list currently is, which is a little over 1,600 uh, numbers listed, there are about over 5,000 people who are waiting for their numbers to be called. Earlier this week, American border agents threw tear gas into a crowd of protesters in Tijuana. Some of them were women and children. Trump and Homeland Security Secretary Nielsen defended this practice. They said it was necessary. And I'm, I'm just curious, how did the use of, you know, tear gas impact members of the caravan? What, what's the mood there? It scared people. It upset people. It confused them. Um, I met one guy uh, in his early 30s who had just arrived, actually arrived a, a day or two before the incident with the tear gas and really came here under the expectation that there would be a, a decent shot for him to present his claim to the border. And there would be that the caravan would be met at the very least with with, with more humanity from U.S. officials, the tear gas incident immediately disabused him of that assumption. There have been reports, and at this point it just seems largely anecdotal, but there, there have been reports that hundreds of people have reevaluated uh, whether or not they want to go through with this process because of what happened with the tear gas incident. I don't know what that looks like, if that means that those people just decide to stay in Tijuana and try to make ends meet here, uh, or if they're contemplating possibly returning to their home countries and, and reevaluating from there. But I think for the most part, it was it, that that maneuver, um, you know, gassing women and children who are 
were rushing the border was calculated to create this particular effect. Um, and I think that it's, it's really made matters worse. You know, the other thing is we talk about the population of the caravan, the 6,000 people who've just, who've just washed into Tijuana. They're only the latest people to have arrived here. There are tens of thousands of migrants and asylum seekers who've come to Tijuana over the last year and several months. And so they've also felt a great deal of anxiety. They're thinking to themselves, okay, we've been waiting here. And now there's this crackdown that will this change the, the projections for our future in terms of being able to present ourselves at the border. Um, so there's also an anxiety there that other migrants are skeptical, quite frankly, of the caravan or, or, or worried about it or worried that it's disrupting this very precarious balance that they've been trying to ride out this entire time. You, you know, met members of the caravan when they were just starting out. Can you talk about, you know, one or two of the people who actually made it to the border? Um, sadly or not, I guess, depending on how you see the, the situation here, a number of the people I traveled with uh, a, a, along the route through southern Mexico um, didn't even make it this far. Uh, one family I had been traveling with uh, eventually got arrested by Mexican immigration authorities and were deported back to Honduras. So I've been messaging with them. They're in Honduras. They're actually planning another trip north as soon as they have the money to make the, the journey. Um, so they hadn't made it this far. Um, the people who I do speak to who are here are um, this, the same cross-section of people who were in the caravan to begin with. Women and children uh, who have quite astonishingly made it this far um, after a, a truly and unimaginably grueling journey. Um, there are smaller groups within the caravan too. So there was a group of LGBTQ um, asylum seekers and they, because they have such strong asylum claims, uh, received the help of um, nonprofits who felt like they really did have a decent shot at getting asylum if, if they made it this far. Um, and then you also have this broad population of young men uh, many of them don't have the strongest asylum claims. Some some do. Um, and they're trying to figure out whether or not it makes sense just to stay here for a while and work and kind of see how the situation plays out. So it, the mix from before is still intact, but everyone is much more haggard for 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 all the time that's elapsed since since they were in, in southern Mexico to now. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, I'll talk with our Washington correspondent about the many political battles being waged in the Capitol over how to deal with the coronavirus. You couldn't imagine a president personalizing a crisis with a virus, but somehow that's, that's where we are. Susan Glasser, this week on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And it seems that the Trump administration is intent on using the caravans to remake wholesale the American asylum system. Can you talk about, you know, how they're trying to achieve that and, you know, will what, what changes they make stand up or will they be thrown out in the courts in the U.S.? So the, the Trump administration is basically trying to end asylum at the southern border as we know it. Uh, and there, there are two broad ways that the administration is trying to do it. The, the, the first prong of this assault on the asylum system has to do with the official ports of entry. So this is a, a place like where, I, where I've just been. So what the Trump administration has increasingly been doing at these ports of entry, and that's very much in evidence in Tijuana, is they are blocking people from crossing through these ports of entry. But what the Trump administration has simultaneously been doing is it's been penalizing people 
who cross in between ports of entry. And they've been doing a number of things. Some of the most grotesque things the Trump administration has been doing of late uh, has been to penalize asylum seekers attempting to cross in this way. So they're detaining asylum seekers indefinitely. The U.S. uh, has been separating parents and children at the border. Um, And most recently, what the Trump administration has attempted to do, and it's since been held up in the courts, is to try to say, okay, if you attempt to enter the U.S. in between an official port of entry, asylum isn't even available to you. Now, that's an, an outright contravention of federal and international law. And so a federal judge has blocked that particular presidential proclamation that would have banned asylum at the southern border. But you're seeing how the administration is effectively ramping up to make asylum seeking more or less impossible at the border. They're also increasingly trying to put pressure on the Mexican government. And so one of the things that the the Trump administration has long dreamed about, and which seems like an absolutely outlandish prospect and something the Mexicans will never agree to, is an agreement known as a safe third country agreement, which would mean that if if a migrant traveled through Mexico to reach the U.S. and seek asylum, the U.S. government could say to them, look, you could have presented your asylum claim in Mexico. We're not even going to hear your asylum claim. We're just going to return you to Mexican authorities and you're going to have to hope for the best in Mexico. The Trump administration has tried even another strategy. And this idea is that for those seeking asylum in the U.S., After they go through the initial screening at the U.S. border, they'll then be forced to wait in Mexico for months while the immigration case moves its way through the American court system. The Mexicans, shockingly, seemed not to be entirely hostile to that idea. Now the details are getting murkier and the incoming Mexican administration, which takes over on December 1st, is is saying that those talks haven't advanced. But this is the broad kind of panorama of how the Trump administration is waging war on asylum at the southern border. So you mentioned the new Mexican uh, government this summer. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador won the presidential elections. He takes power this weekend. I mean, how will Lopez Obrador deal with this crisis? And, you know, what do you think his approach will be towards President Trump in the long term? The expectation based on the way he campaigned is that he would very much stand up to Trump, that he would take up the cause of migrants, Central American migrants and the underprivileged throughout Central America uh, and and do his best to do right by them. Um, That really remains to be seen, obviously. And the news from last week that members of his administration were in these negotiations with the Americans and seemed fairly sanguine about policies that struck everyone here as quite outlandish does not seem to bode well. It's really unclear what will happen as the Americans continue to pressure this new administration. President Trump has talked about this caravan as an unprecedented, you know, invasion is the term he uses uh, of migrants on the American border. Is that true? I mean, you know, has this never happened on the U.S. border before? And, And what are the numbers like just countrywide? How many people are trying to come into the U.S. from around the world? If you really pan out and look at the broad numbers here, there are not more people attempting to enter the U.S. than ever before. What is new is the crisis that the U.S. is in some ways actively creating by trying to seal the border. The caravan itself is um, quite a new and striking thing in the politics of immigration in Latin America. Never before, as far as I know, has a group of migrants organized in this way and moved as a unit and kind of advanced on the border in this fashion. 
it obviously creates these new these new optics for politicians who are demagoguing on the issue. Uh, and it is causing major repercussions in northern Mexico. The politics are shifting around the issue. When the caravan arrived in Tijuana, um, of course, there was a whole narrative already set in place um, and largely set by Trump and in turn by opportunistic Mexican politicians to paint these migrants as a kind of band of, of marauders and aggressive, unruly ingrates. Um, but again, that reflects trends that have been steadily worsening in the region that the U.S. has also had a hand in. So, for example, most of the members of the caravan are fleeing Honduras, uh, a country ruled by, uh, a frankly, authoritarian president who is an ally of the U.S., who seems to have lost his election, his reelection bid last year, only to mysteriously pull out victory from the jaws of defeat with the Americans giving their final blessing. People, more and more people are going to flee from these countries where violence is rampant, where there's massive entrenched political corruption, where the economies are cratered. And then, of course, there is the ironic and inescapable fact of President Trump's obsession with MS-13, with gangs in Central America. Of course, the full story with those gangs is that they began in the U.S. and that they spread through Central America as a result of mass deportation from the U.S. Um, and so you're you're kind of seeing a perfect storm here. And in in the totality of the things that are at play in the region and along the border, um, you might have a situation that is without precedent, even when the numbers themselves in terms of how many people are trying to enter the U.S. aren't higher than they've been before. And just, John, a last question. What happens to these people now? There's 6,000 people huddled in this, this camp. The conditions are horrible. What do you think happens in the weeks ahead? I think you're going to see just increasingly dire and upsetting stories about the position that these people are in. The, 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 this refugee camp itself um, is so overrun and is so overwhelmed that it's hard to imagine um, people can stay there for much longer. And yet, members of the caravan have at the very least, the very least a month or two ahead of them. Um, the mayor here has suggested there's at least six months. I think probably what will happen is those who can will start to strike out and look for work. Uh, when they get a little bit of money, they will start to rent small apartments that are clustered throughout the city. And they will live this attenuated existence while they wait either for their number to be called or for a situation to clarify itself um, and hope for the best. Thank you so much, John. Thanks so much, David. Jonathan Blitzer is a staff writer at The New Yorker and a regular contributor to NewYorker.com. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app and find more political analysis and commentary on NewYorker.com. Feel free to rate and review The Political Scene on Apple Podcasts, this podcast is produced by Alex Barron and Hannah Wilentz for NewYorker.com. I'm David Rode, filling in for Dorothy Wickenden.